0: Toronto's a city that's long struggled to make any sort of impression on the imagination. Though admired for its diversity and quality of life, Canada's financial and cultural capital has mostly lacked for landmark architecture and design, or any imagery of global significance. It's a city better appreciated for its vibrant, livable neighborhoods than striking urban moments. Some may claim the CN Tower as an exception, what was, for a time, the world's tallest freestanding structure. But really, there's only one building that's ever put the city on the map. Toronto City Hall, created by Finnish architect Viljo Ravel. For a brief moment in the 1960s, its sculptural, symbolic design suddenly made the city look almost avant-garde. And though Ravel's City Hall complex has had an uncertain relationship with residents at times, today it's embraced as Toronto's one truly iconic piece of architecture and as an example of how design can inspire a sense of civic belonging. I think to appreciate this
1: design, you have to take yourself back to Toronto in the 1950s. So Toronto in the 1950s is about a million people. We're the second tier city in Canada after Montreal. We're not really the center of any design culture. You know, we weren't, we weren't some, we were still fairly colonial. So the competition comes along and we see international designs from all over the world, from all of the hotshots and the heavyweights. And Rovell's was by far the one that captivated uh, captivated the audience, especially Saarinen, who was uh,
0: one of the key judges. It made for a startlingly futuristic site when it opened in 1965. Two curving, inward-facing towers of differing heights, their ribbed backsides inlaid with strips of granite, cradle the flying saucer-like structure that houses the council chambers, which is itself elevated above a two-story podium. The openness of Ravel's plan, and the optimistic spirit it represented, proved auspicious for the city. At the same time, Canada's immigration laws were being loosened, and a more diverse, multicultural population began to take shape. Together, these two events signaled the birth of today's 21st century Toronto, its progressive values embodied in Ravel's fluid design. From the street, you
1: see the big white council chamber, and that's probably the most spectacular piece of interior architecture is this big floating council chamber, which is a bit of a structural gymnastics even to have it standing there. So from the street, you can see council, it's transparent, you can get up onto this level, you can sort of see into it. And then around it, on either side, you have the the bureaucratic towers, you know, where the the business happens. And they're sort of forming this idea of, of these are the, you know, the hands of the people surrounding the council chamber. There's some sort of, you know, uh, there's some symbolism there. But I think it really is just this, this plastic, iconic form of architecture that is, if you visit here and you've never been, you're sort of, what is that place? There's something going on there.
0: That symbolism is also apparent indoors, culminating in one sweeping gesture, a flared column that mushrooms out of the ground to provide the only structural support for the council chamber three stories above. Meanwhile, the design of the council chamber is modeled after an ancient amphitheater. Perhaps an unwitting touch of prescience on Ravel's part, given its recent service as the set for Toronto's controversial mayor, Rob Ford, and the media circus that surrounds him. Although City Hall kickstarted a wave of large-scale downtown development, the public was less ready to appreciate its nerve. After inauguration, the novelty seemed to wear off and feelings of ambivalence set in something especially evident in how city staff took care of the site. A raft of poorly considered modifications diminished its function and appeal. The square became cluttered with additions and was at one point even used for storing equipment. Revelle's city hall was treated as though it were a misfit child.
1: It really was of its time as a high modern 60s, you know, piece of cool architecture. I think by the 80s and 90s, people started scratching their heads. That's when, because of maintenance things, this plaza, the top plaza was closed down, the kind of catwalks and walkways were closed down, and it was in need of some love. And there were some sort of unfortunate kind of interventions done at that time, and it was more about how do, we, how do we fix this sort of like modern building rather than work with it.
0: Fortunately, an ongoing revamp is restoring much of Ravel's original vision to the site. In summertime, the reflecting pool hosts crowds of office workers on break. Well, on most days, the square might be packed for a political rally, farmer's market, charity run, or art fair. Best of all, in 2009, the plaza atop the podium was finally reopened as a publicly accessible green roof. A stroll amidst its gardens offering one of the more unique vantage points looking out onto the city.
1: Thankfully, um, the new interventions that have been happening um, are really respectful of the building and are really making it work. And so the treatment of this new garden plaza, the reopening of this, um, the actual decluttering of the large plaza that has now been able to host, you know, large metropolitan-scaled events. Uh, so I think the city has sort of grown up and, and come to reappreciate just how much of a modern gem this is.
0: That locals have finally embraced Ravel's design as the symbol of their city may have something to do with Toronto's growing confidence and international profile. Today's liberal, multi-ethnic Toronto, boasting more foreign-born residents than any other major city, is in many ways a fulfillment of the values Ravel hoped to project. Rather than simply getting used to it, it's a building the city has grown into. In Toronto for Monocle, I'm Chris Frey.